Podcast dedicated to suspense and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. I'm Joshua. We love scary old-time radio stories. There's nothing quite like a disembodied voice telling a genuinely disturbing tale. But do these stories stand the test of time, or are we being deceived by nostalgia? Are they suspenseful or forgettable, bone-chilling or butt-numbing? That's what we're here to find out. This week, I chose an episode of The Mysterious Traveler entitled Behind the Locked Door. The Mysterious Traveler ran for nine years on the Mutual Broadcasting Network from 1943 to 1952 and spawned two radio spinoffs, The Sealed Book and The Strange Dr. Weird, as well as a short-lived pulp magazine and comic book. Maurice Tarplin played the mysterious traveler, narrating each story with a bemused menace similar to other crime and horror MCs of the day, including The Whistler and Raymond from Inner Sanctum. Tarplin also played the ever-exasperated Inspector Faraday on the detective program Boston Blackie. The mysterious traveler was created, written, and directed by Robert Arthur Jr. and David P. Cogan. The duo utilized a variety of genres, including horror, crime, and science fiction. Listeners tuned in each week, never sure what kind of story the mysterious traveler would tell. Sadly, Arthur and Cogan's successful career came to an untimely end in 1953 when they were accused of communist activities by the House Committee for Un-American Activities. Behind the Locked Door was one of the program's most popular episodes. After its initial broadcast, May 24, 1949, the story was brought back again in 1951. This is good news for fans today because there are no surviving copies of the 1949 broadcast. Thanks to this encore performance, we can now listen to Behind the Locked Door, originally broadcast November 9, 1951. Forget the petty distractions around you. Forget what you think you know. Forget everything but what you hear right now. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Travelers, written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Coburn, and starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Lyle Sudrow and Robert Dunley, in Behind the Locked Door. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and kill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as I bring you the strange and chilling stories so many of you have asked to hear again. I call it Behind the Locked Door. Our story begins in the beautiful mountain region of Lake Mead, Arizona. A convertible car is speeding along a deserted road which winds through the mountains. The car slows down and turns into a dirt road. A few minutes later, it comes to a stop before a small mountain lodge. Kathy Evans, an attractive girl in her early 20s, gets out of the car, runs up the steps of the lodge to the front door. She knocks impatiently, looking about anxiously. Yes? Martin. Kathy. I thought I'd find you here. Aren't you going to ask me? Go away, Kathy. Martin, what's wrong? Go away. Go away. Not until I find out what this is all about. Let me in. Are you alone? Alone? Yes. 
Charlie, look at yourself. You haven't shaved in days. Martin, those deep gashes on your nicking face. How did you get them? It doesn't matter. Darling, you must have lost a great deal of blood. And you're feverish. Yes, I know. Is it true about Professor Stevens? Yes. Why did you leave town so suddenly last night? The authorities are looking for you. Do they know I'm here? No. How could they? It was intuition that brought me here. They must have found me. Martin, nothing makes sense. You returned from an expedition last night alone, unexpected. You stay in town one hour and then vanish. Not even phoning me. It's best that way. Believe me, Kathy. You've got to tell me everything that's happened. I can't, Kathy. I can't. I'm your fiancé. I've got a right to know. Kathy, go away, please. I won't go away until you tell me what's happened. If I do, then will you go? Yes. I... I don't know where to begin. I suppose if you can say it had a beginning, it it was that day a little over two weeks ago in Professor Stevens' office. Come in, Martin. Come in. Have a seat. Thank you, Professor. Martin, how would you like to go exploring with me for, say, ten days and two weeks at the outside? Exploring where? The Vermilion Cliffs along the Colorado River. I found some wonderful Aztec pieces there last summer. One large cave I stumbled on proved to be a veritable treasure trove. Yes, yes, I've seen those Aztec pieces in the University Museum. Now, the Vermilion Cliffs still remain largely unexplored. I'm sure that we could turn up many more objects of interest. (laughs) It certainly sounds intriguing. The only reason I hesitate, Professor, is because of Kathy. I'm sure she'd give you a two-week leave of absence. (laughs) Yes, I suppose so. How many of us would go? Well, it would just be you, myself, and an Indian guide. And three burrows. I find that the fewer there are on an expedition, the better. Mm -hmm. When would we leave? Well, what about the day after tomorrow? All right, Professor, I'm with you. So these are the Vermilion Cliffs, Professor. Yes. An awe-inspiring sight, aren't they? They're as breathtaking as the Grand Canyon itself. I had no idea they towered so high. Yes, they make you realize just how insignificant man really is. Yeah. Now, this region is so desolate, Martin, that it's all but unexplored. That's why I'm drawn to it time and time again. Yes, I can understand that. It represents the challenge of the unknown. (laughs) Careful, Martin, you'll get the exploring bug. Oh, I've already been bitten, Professor. Well... You're going to be an explorer and an archaeologist. I'll have to start teaching you the fundamentals of the profession. Sam, this seems like a good spot. We'll camp here for the night. Phew. It certainly is hot, Professor. Exploring isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah. All right, Professor, what is it? For 20 minutes now, you've been sitting on that rock, staring at that cliff. (sighs) Note the boulders strewn over the face of that cliff. What about them? That's a very peculiar landslide. If you carefully study the formation of it... What's peculiar about it? Many of the rocks look as though they'd been placed there by human hands. (laughs) But why and by whom? Well... One of the ancient Aztec forms of punishment was to seal a person in a cave by means of a landslide or just piling heavy rocks in front of the mouth of the cave. That landslide, there must be hundreds of tons of rock there. Yes. Well, fortunately, we're prepared for it. Is that why you brought the dynamite along? Yes. (laughs) Probably all we'll find will be a skeleton. In that case, it'll have been a waste of dynamite. However, we'll chance it. 
Oh, Sam. What do you want? Get the case of dynamite, Sam. I'm going to blast that landslide. Professor. Better leave it same way it be. Why? Evil spirit sleeping cave. Better not wake him up. <laughs> you really believe that, Martin? I wouldn't laugh. Sam may be uneducated, but he senses things that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean you believe what he said about evil being asleep in that cave? I wouldn't say that I'd believe it. But nevertheless, I respect Sam's opinion. Sam, I still want to blast that landslide. I get dynamite. Keep your head down, Martin. When I set that dynamite off, there are going to be a great many rocks flying around. Don't worry, Professor. I've got cover. Sam, you ready? Yes, Professor. All right. Here goes. Keep your head down. All right. It's safe now. Professor, I think you did it. I can see a small opening. It looks like a mouth of a cave. Yes, it is. Sam, let me have one of the flashlights. Martin, you take the other. Uh, I'll lead the way in. Just as you say, Professor. The air doesn't seem too bad in here. Yes, it's all right. Yeah, it... What's that noise? Just... Rats scurrying around. Oh. Certainly a huge cavern. Look at that ceiling. Must be 200 feet high. Look at the bats up there. Yes, huge ones. I have a feeling that this cavern and others extend for miles underground. Yeah, I... Professor, look. Skeleton. Yes. There's another one over there. Yes. See what else there is. Wagon train. What? Good Lord. Sam's right. It's a wagon train. A wagon train? Yes. But there are at least 30 or 40 wagons in this cavern. Look. Skeletons of horses. Uh, here's a skeleton with an arrow beside it. Let me see it. Appears oh. to be a Navajo arrow. What do you think, Sam? Navajo. Professor, this. This wagon train, what's it all mean? Well, many years ago, this wagon train was attacked by Indians. Wagon train retreated into this cavern, hoping to save themselves that way. And then the Indians caused the landslide, sealing them in. Yeah. Poor devils. Notice that old gun lying there. Yeah. The flintlock. Seems to suggest that this wagon train must be at least a hundred years old. Yeah, probably headed for the California gold rush of 1848. Yeah. Well, we'll come back tomorrow and search this wagon train thoroughly. I'm sure we'll find many things of great interest. The next morning, after an early breakfast, Sam and I followed Professor Stevens back into the cabin. We spent the morning investigating the trunks of boxes we found on the wagons. And among the moldy clothing and 101 household articles, we found faded letters and newspapers which showed the wagon train had crossed the Mississippi in the summer of 1849, headed west for California and gold. We finished rummaging among the effects of the wagons, and the professor suggested we explore the cavern. We followed him from one cavern to another, each varying in size. Now and then the professor would stop to mark our trail, for the caverns were honeycombed with countless passageways. How far do you think we've come, Professor? I should say we're about a mile from the wagon train. Uh-huh. We'll go back a few more minutes. We'll go back now. 
this place evil. Now, Sam, if there are ghosts here, they're only the ghosts of the people in the wagon train. They wouldn't harm us. I tell you, evil. Feel it. All around. We'll go back. We'll go just a little further. And turn back. Professor, wait a minute. What is it, Martin? I think I hear running water. Yes, you're right. Come along. We seem to be getting closer. Yes, yes. Evil all around us. Can't be much further. Well, there it is. Yeah. It's a small river. <laughs> Look how swiftly it's flowing. Yeah. It probably flows for miles underground and it empties into the Colorado River. Say, Professor, here along the bank, there's a tremendous pile of fish bones. Yeah, so there is. Look. Now, there are even more on the other side of the river. Mm. What do these huge piles of fish bones mean? It's very strange. Well, how do you account for it? I'm afraid that at the moment I can't. Sam, you any ideas about it? He will fall around us. Feel him strong. Professor, he's trembling. Sam, there's nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'll shine my flashlight around. See? We've been watched. Watched? What are you talking about? We'll stay here. I go. Sam, come back. You haven't even got a flashlight. Sam! Come on, Martin. We've got to catch him. Sam! Wait for us. I can still hear his footsteps. We've got to catch him. Didn't hear himself a serious injury running in the dark like that. Sam! Wait for us! Professor, it's Sam! Screamer! This way! The fool's probably broken his leg! Sounds more like a fight! Fight? Who could he possibly be fighting with? He stopped! Sam, where are you? Keep shining the flashlight around! Can't be much further! Sam! There he is! Yes! He's just. Just sitting against that boulder. His head down. Sam. Give me a hand with him. God, Lord. His face. Nick. Yes. Uh, who could have done this to him? I don't know. But there must be an explanation. There has to be. Martin. I have a theory. But it's so incredible. I can't bring myself to voice it. Oh, tell me. What do you think I'm insane? Tell me. What if the people of the wagon train, or rather the descendants, are alive here in these huge caverns? Oh, that's impossible. Why? Picture what happened the day the 150 people or so were sealed into this mountain by the Indians. What would have been the first thing they'd have done? Tried to dig their way out. Exactly. They start digging and find there are 100 ton boulders blocking the entrance, and they have no dynamite. They're forced to give up. Yes. They spend days looking for another way out, fail to find one. The day comes when all their food is gone. Starvation sets in. All right, all right. Then that would mean they would all die. Not necessarily. The strongest of them stumble along in the darkness and find the underground river. They catch an abundance of fish and are able to survive. The huge fishbone piles along the river. Right. The river was an everlasting supply of food. They continue to live by the river in the dark. Some probably went insane, died. Others adjusted themselves to their new environment. Professor, you... You think those... handful of survivors have descendants who are alive today? Inside this mountain? Yes, Martin. And it was one of them who clawed Sam to death. What can those descendants be like? Being born and, and, and living in darkness? I can only guess. I should imagine they'd be blind or near to it. But their other senses would be remarkably developed. Their physical appearance. 
I don't know. It's felt like a nightmare. A nightmare you can't awaken from. What, what's to prevent them from attacking us? Our flashlights, for one thing. I'm sure light frightens them, just as fire frightens animals. Fortunately, I have a revolver. Well, we better move on. Wait a minute. What about Sam? There's nothing we can do for him now. Come along, Martin. We must find the trail I marked so that we can get out of here. Uh, seems we've been searching days for the markings you left. Yes. Actually, it's been ten hours. Listen, uh, boy. The river. Yes. Yeah. Come along. Yeah. Once we reach the river, we'll be able to pick up the trail I'm on. Well, we're getting closer. Yes. There it is. Here we are. Look, Martin, there's my marking on that passageway. We found the trail. Yes. Martin, 2 a.m. We'd better rest for a few hours. We're both too exhausted to go on right now. Let's one of us stand guard. While the other sleeps. All right. Oh, I'll set up the first hour. Thank you, Martin. Keep the flashlight on. Don't worry. I will. In a matter of minutes, the professor fell asleep and... I sat on guard, flashing my light slowly around the huge cavern. I looked at my watch, and the seconds seemed like minutes, and the minutes like hours. My eyes grew heavy, and I finally dozed off. Suddenly, I awakened in the darkness to hear the professor screaming. Frantically, I fumbled in the darkness, but I couldn't find it. Then suddenly, I was shot. By the, the gun, I could see the professor struggling with a huge, dark figure. And suddenly, all was quiet. Except for the professor's moans. As I crawled toward him, in the darkness, my hand struck the flashlight. I turned it on, and there was the professor. Martin, I think I'm wounded. You're, you're bleeding badly. Let me stanch your wounds. Too late. Leave at once. Everyone, but what about you? Professor? Professor! I felt his heart, but there was no beat. I staggered to my feet, shined my flashlight around until I found the professor's markings. I stumbled wearily along the marked passageway, trying not to remember my last glimpse of the professor's face. I hadn't gone more than a hundred yards when suddenly my flashlight flickered and went out. As I stood alone in the darkness, rats scampering past, I fought to keep from screaming. The darkness seemed to become heavier and more oppressive with each passing moment, and I had the feeling something was silently approaching. I backed up against the passage wall and waited, my eyes straining in the darkness, and then suddenly I was leaped upon by a wild fury. I threw my arms up and raised my claws, right my face and neck. Again and again, my guard was savage, was not the sight, and I could feel the blood streaming down my face and neck. And then suddenly the deathly clawing ceased as my attacker turned to ward off something in the dark. As I sank to my knees, I was dimly aware of a fierce fight taking place in the men consciousness. <laughs> later. How much later, I have no way of knowing. I became aware of a heavy, calloused hand washing my face and neck with water. I winced in pain as the water flowed into the deep cuts, and then suddenly I remembered all. And remembering all, became aware of the calloused hand washing my face and the presence 
of someone beside me in the darkness. Who are you? For a moment, the hand hesitated. Then resumed washing the connect. Well, can't you speak? Say something! Uh, uh, A noise uh, came from uh, its throat that was more of that of an animal than a human being. If, if I could only see you. Do you have a name? Uh, it spoke. It seemed to repeat the word name, though I couldn't be sure. And faint from the loss of blood, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. When I awoke, my face and neck felt stiff and painful. It seemed to sense I was awake, for as I opened my eyes and stared into the darkness, it came to my side. Can't... Can't you understand anything at all? Don't my words make any sense to you? Why did you save my life? My hand brushed against its hand. And I could feel the sharp, claw-like fingers on it. I reached out in the darkness as I touched its face. It bit my hand. I tried to get to my feet, but it placed a strong hand on my shoulder and held me down. At that moment, I realized that not only was it my savior, but my jailer as well. I lost all track of time. Now and then, it would leave me. And I would cautiously get to my feet to steal off the... No sooner had I taken more than a few steps than it would be there at my side, forcing me to return to the bank of the river. I spent my every waking moment trying to think of a way to escape. And then, when my despair was greatest, an idea came to me. The professor had said that the underground river I lay beside emptied into the Colorado River. Though the odds were a hundred to one against my surviving, I knew it was the only possible way of escape. Slowly, I crawled a few remaining feet to the edge of the river and Leaning over, started to wash my face. I could sense that it was watching me. I leaned forward a few inches more and fell into the river. As I came up for air in the swift flowing water, I heard a splash beside me. A moment later, I felt its arms around me. The current swept us along with breathtaking speed, and as we clung to each other, I discovered that it couldn't swim. For what seemed hours, the river swept us along in the darkness, and I felt myself losing consciousness as I attempted to keep the two of us above water. When, when I regained consciousness, Kathy, we were both lying on a sandbar in the Colorado River. And the sun was beating down on us. <laughs> Darling, you're delirious from your wounds. You need a doctor. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were as simple as all that. You're feverish. You need care. Go, go away, Kathy. Go away. How can I? Leaving you alone like this? Don't you understand? I'm not alone. She's here. Yes. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? It turned out to be a she. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're saying. When I first saw her. That first time. Lying unconscious on that sandbar, my first instinct was to leave her there. But how could I? She'd saved my life in the cavern and then jumped into the river when she thought I was drowning, even though she couldn't swim herself. Martin, I want you to get a grip on yourself. Just as I was dependent on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light. She's blind. She can't speak yet. She... Stop talking like that. <laughs> you can't believe it's true, can you, Kathy? 
Neither could I at first. What are you staring at? Huh? Is there anyone in that bedroom? <sighs> well, I'll soon find out. Why is the door locked? She's in there. Martin, you're sick. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'll prove to you there's no one in that room. It's just your imagination. Give me the key to the door. Kathy, Kathy, go Give away. Give it to me. Thank you. Perhaps when you see the room is empty, you'll be willing to return to town for medical treatment. There. I told you. This is the mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our trip? What's that, madam? You want a description of what Kathy saw when she opened that bedroom door? Well, you might ask Kathy. The only trouble is, the poor girl gets hysterical when you question her about the occupant of that bedroom. I suggest you write a letter to the Museum of Horrors for a full description. They consider the woman of the mountain as their star exhibit. Because when she's... Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at the same time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler. You may now enjoy other exciting adventures of The Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of The Mysterious Traveler magazine. And our cast, Lyle Sudrow, Anne Shepard, and Robert Dudley with Maurice Trapper in the title role. Phil Tonkin speaking. This program came to you from New York. Mutual's ace commentator Cecil Brown, currently on a three-month fact-finding tour of the world, heads for the Orient on the last lap of his history-making trip. In these last weeks, Mr. Brown will bring you on the on-the-scene reports from such tinderbox areas as India, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Japan, and Honolulu. You won't want to miss any of the eyewitness accounts by this able commentator of the latest happenings in these headline-making spots of the world. Be sure to listen to the news reports of Cecil Brown over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Mysterious Traveler and the episode Behind the Locked Door here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. All right. And if you were listening last week, uh, we did our 50th episode, which was the thing on the Forble board from an episode of Quiet Please, which we had been saving for our 50th because it's one of the all-time greats. And uh, Joshua picked this one for this week because it's a nice follow-up to Mm -hmm. this. It is compared to the thing on the formal board for a lot of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Not only some very obvious ones, going deep within the earth and finding life. Also marrying that life and form. Marrying, <laughs> and, and, and falling in love with that life form. and that's Or at least obvious. locking that life form in your bedroom. Right. <laughs> right. But there's some structural yeah. things, too, yeah. that are very similar yeah, as actually, well. Throughout both this and the formal board, pulling random quotes out as metaphors for marriage is a never-ending source of <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> Let's start with the opening first. I love the opening, The Mysterious Traveler, and I realized something this time uh, that I'd never realized before. It is the same exact train foley as I Love a Mystery. Oh. It is, it is not similar. It's the same one. So that train you there hear was in Mysterious just one Traveler, train that got all the work during radio. <laughs> and then it goes into Valde Trist, the theme song of I Love a Mystery with the organ. The difference in Mysterious Traveler is you just hear the train. But it's the same train. Anyway. We've said it over and over again, but I think it's worth saying again. I uh, love the sounds of trains. God, I love yeah, trains. Yeah. Uh, train whistles at yeah. night in the dark. Yeah. But I love anything on a train. Any movie that I can watch, it's black and white, and there are people on a train. I mean, Agatha Christie's anything on a train. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the one where the train did it? 
Have you ever ridden a train for a long period of time? Like gone somewhere? What's your definition of a long period of time? I went Not to like Montana, overnight. so I spent like 30 hours on okay. an Amtrak. Okay, and I, oh, this, I'm going to go skiing in Montana on an Amtrak, and I thought, oh, this is going to be super romantic in the sense of, wow, a train journey, like it's 1945. Uh, it's terrible. You never stop moving, mm-hmm. and you get sick. You go to the dining car. Your food's just moving. <laughs> it's always falling off. Nothing stops moving. And then you watch a movie, and it's perfectly still. You just hear the click, click, but it's like a nice little hotel they're in. To pass the time on my train ride, about the 80th hour in, whatever, people, they walk down the aisle, and of course, they're bouncing all over the place. (laughs) So these people are bouncing because it's moving, and they're trying to keep their balance getting past you. So as they were walking, I'd hit my buddy and do this. (laughs) And I'd make Frankenstein noises. Yeah, it passed a lot of hours. No, t- trains train are, bad. No, it's just not as fun as I thought it would. But be. it makes a great opening for an old radio show. Correct. We can agree on that. All right, so let's get into this. Sorry, uh, this is a a really really interesting story. Here's what I love most about it in general: the big picture. You don't have to suspend much disbelief. This seems plausible. I mean, not in the sense of. <laughs> Super plausible, but <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's not supernatural, right? This right. Is not, that's, uh, like, that's what I'm getting at. It's not supernatural. Yeah. Part of what's interesting about it is that it starts out making you think this is going to be an Aztec curse story. The plot twists are just nonstop and all over yeah. the map and it's so much fun. Yeah. yeah. And so, oh, it's kind of going to be a supernatural Aztec thing. Then it's like, what? We found a wagon train in here. <laughs> like, what? And then is it going to be a ghost story? Piles about, like, of fish bones. And- yeah, the revenge of their ghosts. And so, yes, by the time we get to these Morlock-like creatures who live underground, that seems like science fiction or plausible science fiction area. Morlock? Like the Morlocks from the time machine. Oh, I thought this was going to be a Doctor Who reference. No. <laughs> but if you'd like me to make one. <laughs> Morlocks <can. laughs> from, from H.G. Wells. Yeah, band. that's, oh, that's what it reminded me yeah, of. Yeah, I see that, yeah. Uh, and they kind of combined about... Weena into a Morlock who he falls in love with on the <laughs> Weena. Weena. <laughs> anyway, we will talk about H.G. Wells later. Yeah, once you two go into a corner. <laughs> Let's talk about the framing device. This is a familiar framing device that... In other old-time radio shows that we've done on this podcast, I have taken exception with. When we start one place, and I'm going to now retell the story, so, hey, all right, we're in a room, it's us, and this has happened, and now I'll go tell you the story, and how many times I find that unnecessary. Why don't you just do the story? This is one of the rare times that I found the framing device worked, the wife or girlfriend fiance fiance finding him, what happened, what's going on, all right, I'll tell you what's going on, but then you got to leave. And then when we come back, it makes sense. Everything fit. Yep. Unlike a few episodes we've done, um, the werewolf one we did a few weeks ago where the kid was found in the woods. There was no reason for the framing device. Yep. We talked about that. So I like that this time. It actually helped the story make it even better. I think it's a pretty good hook. And it's really visual, too. For some reason, when the mysterious traveler describes the fiancé driving up, the young, attractive blonde in her convertible, it feels really early 50s, right? Yeah. You can see her. She's got a modern. Yeah. yeah. She's driving up with sunglasses up this mountain road to the lodge to find her fiancé, and he seems so wrecked. Mm -hmm. The, The actor really sells like something really awful happened. This episode, I think more than any other I've heard, I got so much more out of a second listen to it. I think the actor's performance in particular. I agree. Knowing the story and mm-hmm. hearing his performance was so informative to me. To, oh, yeah. Like, well, at the top, when she goes, are you alone? And he has that, alone? And there's this little, like, yeah. <laughs> right. yes. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it, yeah. it goes past you in that first yeah. listen. Yeah, and the, the sort of trauma he's acting, mm-hmm. is performing. When you don't know what happens, like, maybe that's an accurate portrayal, or maybe this guy's overacting. But once I know the story, like, nope, that's the appropriate <laughs> amount of trauma to be portrayed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yep, I, I listened to it a second time, and I'm with you. Getting more details. and Yeah. Again, the foley makes it so visual, especially yeah. when you get in the cavern. Just the, Great foley. The footsteps on the rock. I'm the still trying to bats, figure, the As performers rats. of old-time radio, and we're always trying to figure out how to make these sounds, I'm still struggling with, on a stage, to make running water like a river. And I was listening to it really close, like, how are they doing that? 
And all I can think is it's got to be a bucket and some kind of wheel that's you know, something. perpetual but water, But it like really a sounded like yeah. a river. It was fantastic. Yeah. I have one Foley critique. The explosion? The burrows. Those were the fastest burrows. Those guys were just moving. Oh, the, someone was doing a horse <laughs> tick, 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 gallop, tick, 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 right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. The burrows were just these oh, sprightly God. dancing burrows. <laughs> I'm no burrow expert, but that seems brisk. Like, like the Fred Astaire <laughs> of burrows. <laughs> Um, there's a line at the beginning that gave me pause and he's, well, you want to blow this one up? I don't know. Could be a waste of dynamite. Um, isn't that what you brought it for? <laughs> what do you mean a waste of that? Well, he says just up? finding some skeletons would be a waste of dynamite. And it right. seems like, there's skeletons. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Is, the, is this during the great dynamite shortage? <laughs> <laughs> blow it up. See what's in there. Bring a lot of dynamite. <laughs> Isn't that what yeah. you do? Well, he is a I professor. Blow something up, it's cool. Yeah. Oh, I just saw one of my notes. I want to bring it up. Professor Stevens talks a little bit like Peter Sellers in the Pink Panther. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A little he, bit of, he's pushing it a little. Would you like a room? <laughs> <laughs> His voice seemed a bit much, but it's a testament to the story. Like, it distracted me when he was first introduced. And then once we get into that cave, yeah. either he doesn't do it as aggressively <laughs> as he's been doing it before or it's just you're so engaged in the story it, I, I forget the accent or whatever it was did get less as the mm. story moved on especially after he died <laughs> <laughs> you could barely notice it then so I love this episode overall I have two bones to pick fish uh, bones ah! <laughs> number one is Sam Indian guide it's a little bit of a stereotype. You gotta call him on it. Um, well, was he supposed to have like a Jewish guy? I mean, what <laughs> what makes sense? Well, it's not that necessarily that they make Sam to be a terrible representation of Indians, but he, it's the stereotype. Also, poor Sam. Initially, they say we shouldn't blow apart this cave in, and the professor says, "Ah." Sam knows things we don't. I value his opinion. And then ignores everything Sam says. <laughs> You're absolutely from right. From that point on. He literally almost says at one point, excuse me, once again, the evil is all around us. <laughs> <laughs> and as is unfortunately typical for horror stories, when a person of color points out danger, the person of color pays the price when other people don't listen. listen to him. Right. Yep. I mean, in all fairness, they all pay a certain price in here eventually, but uh, he should not have, is your point. (laughs) Sam should have escaped. Yes. Yes. But to be honest, or to be fair, I should say, Sam had every opportunity to go, I'm out. Yeah. (laughs) You going deeper? (laughs) Not me. I'll be at the front with my uh, tap dancing burrows. (laughs) 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 So I like the vivid imagery of how long this wagon train was. It was over a mile long, 30 of them, right? Yeah. yeah. And how big then, in your head, the cavern gets. So they blow it up, yeah. they go in, oh, it's a wagon train, and in your theater of the mind, you create what this looks like. And it got bigger, but then when you find out, oh, yeah, that would be like a mile long, how big did the cavern then get? Mm-hmm. And you went, where are we? We are in a subterranean yeah. universe, which yeah. made it really cool. Yeah. Like it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then they have, you walk so far that you don't hear the river. And they thought it was plausible that the pioneers that were in there didn't know the river down there until they ran out of food. Yeah, and I think that's the genius of this episode is that discovery of the wagon train. It just elevates it to something really original. You get this really bizarre image based on two things that we can easily conjure in our mind, but they just don't go together. Mm-hmm. We know what a wagon train looks like, and we know what a giant cave looks like, but putting them together, you've entered another realm, and yeah. there's something eerie about it, and it's a great moment. Uh, uh, here is my second bone to pick. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had two, two I thought both your bones were related Sam. to Sam. No, no. The hypothesis that 100 years ago, these pioneers got trapped in this cave. Oh, are you going to pretend to understand evolution now, Tim? And that they're descendants. <laughs> they couldn't evolve in 100 yes. years. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> To describe how freakishly I have evolved compared to my grandparents. Well, with you, it's true. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) I mean, your grandparents are weird looking. And you're a very handsome man. Um, Well, I I think you're right in the sense that they could have been animalistic. But when I stop to think about it, it's ridiculous. It doesn't hit me in the story, but like 100 years. Right. She didn't need to look weird. Some of it, I think, might be our own 
minds filling this in. They never say evolved. They never no, they use don't. that word. They never describe other nope. than having long, sharp fingernails and coarse hands and that they can't see. And that might make sense if you've never had any light reach your eyes oh, that you enough. might be able to see. And I think we're conjuring Isn't there a, a line? beast. Isn't he there? describes something big and dark. There's there's a size maybe, but it could be him being frightened. But he never, right. ever, ever I'm with Tim, though. I, got, I came away with the feeling that they were grotesque. I, I thought that was the word I even heard. Well, he makes much mention of their appearance, and he doesn't want to talk about it. Like, what would their appearance be? Mm-hmm. And they speculate about it as if it was something that would be radically different than a human. Yeah. Right. What does that look like being Pioneers raised? Are naturally ugly. Yeah, yeah they were <laughs> terrible stock that they <laughs> they come from. But I mean, you're born and raised in darkness, and so like it leaves you to conjure your own image. They could be really, really crazy and grotesque, and and really different from humans, or they could just be unshowered, <laughs> um, blind, have have lost. I don't know where they would lose the ability to speak, though. Look at uh, Beyond Thunderdome, right? I mean, the kids lost verbs within 20 years of the apocalypse. <laughs> kids these days. Thanks, Grandpa 80s. <laughs> Clockwork Orange, right? He loses the ability to talk right. I think you make a good point, though, that the story has such urgency to it and is so compelling that you gloss over it. I think it's yeah. also early 50s. This is the time in this genre with the idea that that radiation and different things just does strange things to people right you know i know there's no radiation in the story but it seems like well, it we seems have like this a, genre idea that humans are really unstable like the slightest thing can make them turn into something else in the storytelling logic of trapped in a cave for a long time makes total sense and i go along with it and mm-hmm. it's only when i stop to actually yeah. put things together does it not make sense i found the escalation of the narrative compelling that it starts of course with at the door what happened to this guy the fact that they found a wagon train trapped is cool but that's just the first and twist. it's the first and then oh these navajo indians did this to them which is kind of a step 1a and that's kind of a cool discovery and then uh what's his sam you know there's evil in here and it just keeps building to the point where they figure out what's going on then the professor gets killed and then he gets taken what he thinks is prisoner by one and then he escapes it just keeps going yeah there seems to be a number of times that that could have been the end of the story and i like how they just kept adding layers till we get to the point where he's taken it home and likes it i think right the uh did he marry it well, he doesn't say he married it, but the implication here, now here's where we get into the thing of the board area. He has locked it in the bedroom. And obviously of all the rooms to choose where to lock it, that implies something in 1951. Right, because of marriage. Yes. Because the bathroom behind. is where the cat that doesn't litter box train goes. <laughs> yes. So, and, and he's telling his fiance to go away. So, I mean, I think he feels this is a relationship. What does she see? A uh, mysterious traveler himself asks us that at the end. Yeah. What did she see? You know, and it's a great question. And I think that also leads to what Tim is saying, that obviously some kind of grotesque nature to her. Yeah. We don't get her described because she's so... You wouldn't scream if she was just like a dirty kid. That... There's also some philosophy going on here. There's a lot of Plato's allegory of the cave going on. You know, the idea of if you take... People and you don't expose them to anything else. Uh, mm-hmm. What will will they still be humans? So are we innately human, or is it a learned thing? Uh, are we who we are because that's who we are? You know, and what is reality? Uh, is reality what we deem it to be, or can it be anything? And, and the allegory of the cave explores all of that. Like, and if you remove people. What becomes your reality, then that is reality. And these descendants have become bestial, but this she thing has been compassionate, has taken mm-hmm. pity on uh, him and that, that helped speech nurse where him. he figures it out yeah. is really, uh, it, it works so well, at least because for myself, of I just bought as writ that she's keeping a prisoner. Yep. Not yep. that she had taken him as a companion. Yeah. No, nope. but he goes even farther to say, just as I was dependent. Yeah, uh, on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light, and it doesn't have yet. Maybe things will get ugly, like thing on the formal board. <laughs> it doesn't yes. have all the like taking people prisoner and killing them and feeding them to her and stuff. Um, right, but he's not Beyonce. super. <laughs> he's not super pleased about the situation at the moment. Uh, yeah, but 
he'll get used to it. Yeah, there's a there's a thing. I marriage is about compromise. <laughs> <laughs> there is a thing about the ending to this that leads me also to believe that this isn't about him being in love with her. He says, "What did you want me to do? I couldn't just leave her there. Mm-hmm. She saved me." And I think you're right, Joshua, that at the point that the fiance is there, he's very distraught because I, I'm freaking out. I saved this thing and it's locked in the room and, and I'm I, not sure what I to know do. what I have to do. I have to do the honorable thing. I have to Is that what it is? Take or, care or, or, of her. Take or care he, of her. Is it or is it I'm not sure what to do right now? All I've thought through so far is it's in the room. <laughs> well, I think he says she's dependent on me. I don't think he's made his to final stay decision. Alive, but yeah. not to have babies or yeah. you know yeah. buy I, a house. I, th- I think there we're talking here it, it threads the line between what is literally going to happen and what is thematically happening here. Again, and so, need... I mean, I think it has some level of that uh, sexual horror to it. And I think that's implied by <laughs> behind locked doors. And it's supposed to be a taboo. I think it's supposed to... The horror of it is being obligated to this creature right. in a possibly matrimonial way, like the thing on the Forable Board. But it's less It's less explicit. It suggests these things, whereas right. the thing on the Forable Board just states them. Like thing on the Forable Board, I would like to see the sequel, their life together, going on picnics. But doesn't the Mysterious Traveler suggest she's in a museum somewhere? He has like a final line yeah, where he says you can visit right her the at the Museum oh, of the Horrors. Right. Sounds like he might have failed on his uh, job to protect you. Like, I'll put you in a freak show, honey. <laughs> That's what I would have done. It's work. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true actor. <laughs> That's a paycheck. <laughs> The meals are free. <laughs> Let's vote. Tim? It's excellent. I like it so much. If it weren't for the thing on the formal board, it might be remembered as even better, more well-loved. I will go with you on that. I think that it unfairly is compared to that. I think I like everything about this. I loved the entire story. I loved the acting. I loved the foley. I loved the storyline. I loved the suspense. I loved the layers of it. I loved the ending. It's a classic. I'm going to go ahead and say classic, mainly because it has those similarities, something like Thing in the Forval Board, and that should diminish it because how good the Thing in the Forval Board is. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it can stand up against it is pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. And it did come out afterwards, about a year after uh, the Thing in the Forval Board. Yeah, it's got similarities, but it also has enough differences. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode 51 of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. If you want to learn more, go to ghoulishdelights.com. You'll find other episodes of this podcast. You'll also learn more information about our live shows because we can be seen performing live versions of classic old radio scripts. In fact, we can be seen this September and October at the James J. Hill Center performing live radio shows. That's in St. Paul. You can also go to iTunes and write a review of this podcast. Um, Based on the fact that we ask you to do it every single week, you might get the idea that it's important to us. Please do it. Tell us, do you want us to just do shows about strange marriages between men and she creatures? (laughs) Let us know, because that might become our new thing. (laughs) Right. And if you've already done that, um, there's nothing stopping you from making up new handles or whatever whatever they call it in the internet. Write a new review. Another one. <laughs> Just keep them coming. All right. Our next episode is going to be my pick. And we're going to be listening to an episode from a series called The Columbia Workshop. And the episode is called Carmilla. Until then. Look out! I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Don't ask me. I won't dance. Madam with you.